the number of people who know the Lord and who serve Jesus Christ as Lord is growing. It is. Uh, it is a fact. The last 25 years have seen an increase in the church like never before in history. We, we could say that the percentages in the first century, the percentage of growth from zero to we don't know how many, but the percentage was very rapid in the first century. But in terms of raw numbers, the church has never grown like it is growing right now. It is incredible. We are in the midst of something spectacular. We can miss this, though, because church attendance in North America is declining. We read about that. There's uh, Even secular news seems to really enjoy that fact. There is a refinement happening in faith in Western countries. There's a winnowing of the church. And so because of that, we can miss the bigger reality of what's happening globally. Here in Idaho, we can feel a bit puzzled too because there's, there's some other factors here. Because we read about the national decline in faith in North America, and yet many of our churches are growing because lots of people are moving here. And that, that, can, that can confuse. Even while the re, this refinement's taking place, churches are being planted and they're growing. So that focus on, on our local situation, it can lead us to ignore these global realities. Uh, Idaho is prospering. Business is working here. So it's far from our minds. And it may be far from our minds as we came today, that the growth of the church around the world is being nourished by blood. It's being nourished by the suffering of our brothers and sisters. It's far from our minds that a meeting this size in much of the world would attach, would uh, uh, attract hostile attention from local government. A meeting this size would be shut down immediately. We are able to have preferences, right? We're able to have preferences about what kind of songs we sing, uh, the volume. We're able to have preferences about special effects, whether we should have uh, smoke machines and stuff like that. How many congregations that worship today are hoping and praying simply for the blessing of being able to sing above a whisper. If they gather in an apartment, or they gather out under the trees, and they, they, they have to worship God. But they can't sing out. At GAFCON in April, one of the most remarkable speakers there was a Sudanese pastor who spoke really prophetically and pointedly directly to Anglicans in the West. Uh, and he made two statements that continue to trouble me, continue to echo in my thoughts. So I'm going to trouble you with them. The first, Christianity that costs nothing is unbiblical. Christianity that costs nothing is unbiblical. Opening the eternal kingdom costs Christ Jesus everything. Opening that for us 
cost him everything. So following him must also include laying down one's life. Following the one for whom everything cost must cost us something also. And the second insight, no matter where you live, and he was talking to Western Christians specifically, no matter where you live, you are in a country where the body of Christ suffers because you are part of the body of Christ. Think about that. In other words, this is, he unpacked this for us. Because the body of Christ is in every country, stretches across the globe, in every nation, because the body is everywhere, we are suffering right now. Sitting here this morning, let this challenge us. We are suffering the murder of our kin. Right now. Here this morning, we are suffering the loss of jobs. We're suffering the loss of land. We're suffering the loss of opportunity for education. We, our people, we are being thrown in jail today. Today, we are being beaten and bleeding. Some of us will die today at the hands of persecutors. Us, the body of Christ. It's a strange reality, isn't it? So it's countercultural. It's anti-tribal. It's supranational. It's supernatural. And so today, as we begin a long study through the season after Pentecost of 2 Corinthians, this idea, this theme, it emerges as a central thread in 2 Corinthians. And it is appropriate for today as it comes to us, we begin on this Trinity Sunday. Because this reality comes from the nature of God. Comes from that Trinitarian nature of God. The reality of a spiritually united global people depends on God's nature. Well, as the Word tells us, there is one body and one spirit. Which binds that body together. We have one Lord, one faith in that Lord, one baptism by which we enter that body, that church. One God and Father of all who is over all, who is in all, who is through all. And grace was given to each person according to the wise distribution of Christ. Did you hear the Trinitarian nature? Of our experience. A father over all. A king who distributes. A spirit who holds us together and applies God's power. It is very wonderful to be in spiritual unity with brothers and sisters in East Africa. With brothers and sisters in China and Brazil and Chile and Germany and Ukraine. That's a reality from the heavens. It's hard for us, though. It's hard for us to live in that kind of space. Jesus tried to explain the kingdom 
and things of the Spirit to this confused Jewish teacher named Nicodemus. You remember the conversation? It's in John 3. Jesus said, you can't, he's being very accommodating to Nicodemus, you can't see the wind. You can't see the wind. But you know it's there. And you know it's moving because you hear it and you feel it and you see its effects. He's pointing to the moving of leaves, the grasses, that breeze that we feel on us. But you can't see it. The Spirit is like that, he says. And you don't know what he's been up to, and you don't know where he's going and what he's doing. But we tend to be like Nicodemus, right? We can't harness the wind, and we can't control the wind. And that's what we want to do. We prefer what we can lay our hands on, what we can move around, what we can put in place, and then we can pretend like we're in control and that we're not dependent on God. Now, Christians in the Greek city of Corinth faced similar obstacles to us. A lot... A big reason that we don't like those spiritual realities is because we are control freaks. There's so much we can control in the West. We can refrigerate our food. We can slow down the process of molding and spoilation. That's a big deal. We can control a lot, we think. Christians in Corinth they faced some similar obstacles because Corinth was also a prosperous city. We can look with gratitude at God's word to them because his word to them that confronts them confronts us too. If we're willing, if we'll let it. Let's let it. Let's be confronted. Corinth was one of the largest cities in Greece. It was first, it was destroyed in 146 BC in war. And then Julius Caesar, Roman, eventual Caesar, uh, he, he rebuilt it in 46. And he rebuilt it as a Roman colony. So lots of Romans moved there. Uh, retired army officers moved there. It was like Philippi, also a, a colon, Roman colony. So what it became a Roman city in Greece, full of settlers. And most of, if you notice, in the letters to Corinth, both of them, most of the people greeted or named in the letter have Roman names. Lots of Romans. There were also several synagogues there because when Jews were kicked out of Rome, Corinth was a natural place for them to go. Lots of Jews, multiple synagogues there, Priscilla and Aquila among them. So it was a transplant community. Not unlike where we have found ourselves. In the way that, you know how Meridian feels like a little slice of California? It's like California, Meridian. Corinth was a bit like Rome. It was also a port city. With all the vices of seaports, it doesn't take much of the imagination. Sailors coming in, being at sea, trading. And Corinth celebrated especially the sexual vices they built, their biggest temple was on the mountain just above Corinth. Temple to Aphrodite, goddess of sex. 
At, this, at the time the letter was written, that temple was served by a thousand prostitutes. A thousand prostitutes living on the grounds of that temple. When Paul brought the gospel of Jesus to Corinth, it was among the servant class, including prostitutes, that that church grew. In his first letter, Paul reminds them, this will echo, you'll, you'll remember this, not many of you were wise according to the standards of the time. Not many were wise according to the world. Not many were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. The church apparently grew, grew really quickly. Paul stayed there 18 months. It's quite a while. So that in a city of 90,000 people, about the size of Nampa five years ago, there were, there were multiple gatherings in that, in that city, multiple gatherings of the church. Remembering 1 Corinthians, we know they were not always in sync. So gatherings, uh, each of the sections here might represent the size of a, a church gathering in Corinth, a, a whole church, a local church. And they were not always in sync. Some of them looked to Paul as their teacher. Some looked to Apollos, who had come a little bit later. Some of them looked to Cephas or Peter, who had come for a visit a bit later. That group probably made up primarily of Jews. The patrons who hosted the, each of those gatherings, were competitive for honor. They sought ways to, to get honor for themselves as hosts. Even differing spiritual gifts, what was the gifts that were prominent in each of the gatherings, became a subject for competition and self-interest, leveraging self-interest. Also, between the writing of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, some traveling prophets came, and they were Jewish prophets. They were casting doubt on Paul's apostolic authority, on his leadership. So then, when Paul came for a visit, came over, he was based at Ephesus, came over for a visit to Corinth, he, the, that problem had been become so prominent that one of those patrons, some, probably somebody in the italics section, one of, the, one of those patrons, this is a joke, I try, publicly dishonored Paul. Um, and so he left. He may not even have visited the other local churches. It, that problem, he realized in the moment, this can't be dealt with right now. So he left. And he wrote a letter between 1st and 2nd Corinthians that was uh, rebuking them. Very clear rebuke. And how that message was received was going to determine when and how he would come back. He was going to come back. But how would he come back depended on how they received him. They responded well, which we'll see in this letter. And this letter then is framing for his visit. So all, all that's just background. It's framing how is he going to come to them. He's giving them truth from God to help them 
with the coming interaction, to help them with the issues he's going to be addressing. So although they've got some very particular issues, they've got some serious problems, the principles of the truths he lays down are universal. And those principles are there for us. They're living. So let's look. If you have not looked, opened with your Bible, we're in 2 Corinthians. He begins the letter looking at verse 3 by setting out the theme that we've already raised. The theme we've already begun to think about. The shared experience through the spiritual body of Christ. Shared experience through the body of Christ. Verses 3 to 7. If you just glance at verses 3 to 7, you can all readily see two ways that the body of Christ shares spiritual experience. What, what are those two ways? Comfort and suffering. Comfort and suffering is right there. You don't have to be a Bible scholar. It's just right there. Uh, within five verses, he mentions suffering or affliction eight times. Within five verses, he mentions comfort ten times. These must be ways that we share spiritual experience. The central verse of, this, of the opening sets down the spiritual principle that holds together the reality that he's describing. Verse 5. As we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. As we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. This is just what that Sudanese pastor was saying. What links the experience of suffering and comfort among people who are far apart is what Paul calls sharing. We share that. So all those who are in Christ are part of the same life. All those who are in Christ, that is, our, our hearts, our spirits, are alive from the same source. Each one of us has been awakened by the same source. Each one of our spirits continues to be alive by the same source. And that is true of Christians wherever they are right now. God's Spirit there's an eternal part of us. It's empowered from the throne of God in heaven. There's a fleshly part of us. Allows us to sit here in this space. But there's an eternal part of us. So we share an identity. Children of God. Alive in Christ. Wherever Christians are right now, they are children of God. They are alive in Christ. That's their identity. That's our identity. We share an identity. Now, because of this oneness, we have that mysterious reality that when one suffers, all suffer. When one rejoices, all rejoice. That's strange, isn't it? When one suffers, somehow that affects us all. When one is rejoicing, somehow that joy affects us all. 
And Paul's delighting in it here. He loves this. He's delighting in the reality. And it's, this becomes the framing reality for approaching all these problems of the Jewish community there, the Christian community. He blesses God for it. Verses 3 to 4. Because God is the Father of all mercies, because He's the God of all comfort, He comes to those who are in any trouble or affliction. Because of who He is, He gives comfort to those who are in struggling. And we see that God has been with Paul and Timothy. He's been through the, with them through some terrible circumstances. Verses 8 to 10. Something happened in Asia that almost destroyed them. And it seems it was every bit as bad as he experienced when he was stoned and left for dead in Galatia. He says, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. We were so beyond our strength. You've probably been there before where you realize, I do not, I do not have what it takes to survive this. I don't have the emotional resources. I don't have the mental fortitude. This is too great for me. So that we despaired of life itself. You wonder, what, what could have been the weight of this persecution? What could this have been for Paul? How heavy the hand of evil must have been on him for the apostle of hope to say that he fell in despair, but in that dark place, he found the comfort of God. Christ came to him, he comforted him. Now, Paul knows that in the spiritual economy of God, those sufferings won't be meaningless. And the comfort that he experienced will be multiplied. So not only is the suffering not meaningless, the comfort that he received there is going to be multiplied. This is wild. So when, when the experience of affliction and comfort gets shared, like he says in verse 5, it gets multiplied. They become abundant. How does that work? By sharing, by telling, sharing's the means. By sharing and telling, by empathizing the suffering, then the experience of Christ's comfort also becomes abundant. So this is so much the case that Paul can say in verse 6, if we are afflicted, it becomes for your comfort and saving. Or rescue. If we are afflicted over in Ephesus, it becomes for your comfort and saving. His suffering becomes for your rescue. This is a spiritual marvel. And the way that it works is by sympathy. Sympathy brought by the Holy Spirit. He's saying, he says, if we are comforted, it's for your comfort. It's for his comfort too. But it's also for your comfort. You, you experience this comfort when you endure sufferings with us. 
when you endure them with us, when you share, you share that with us. So, so then, Paul has a solid hope, verse 7. He knows that as you share in our sufferings, as you sympathize with our sufferings, as you care about our sufferings, feeling them with us, crying out because of them, you will also share in the comfort. See how that, see how comfort's multiplied? It doesn't just get restricted to Paul being comforted in his affliction. Because of sympathy, the comfort that God gave is shared. And it's shared with as many people as know it. So when he shares about his suffering and about his comfort, then he knows the Spirit is giving the Corinthians a share in the suffering and comfort. And so Paul then doubly feels the comfort, knowing that his, his brothers and sisters are feeling comfort because of him. He feels it again. He's more comforted because of the sharing. That's spiritual economy. There's no limit to it. It's exponential. It doesn't have to stop. It, it can just keep cascading. And so he concludes this opening to the letter, verse 11, with the primary mechanism of multiplication in the Spirit. Prayer. This is, this is the primary tool that the Holy Spirit uses. He says, you also must help us by prayer. You're helping. You're helping. You're identifying with. You're joining with. So that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. God is going to answer your prayers and his prayers. He's going to give deliverance. And when he does, not only will he rejoice, but everyone who offered up a prayer knows I was involved the Lord included me in this work of deliverance. He called me to it. He called me to ask. And I asked and he did it and he blessed. That's multiplication. Through thanksgiving. I'm going to conclude this by walking it out a little bit. Maybe experiencing it. So that, that Sudanese pastor that I mentioned at the beginning, his name is Yasser. He is a grandson, and there are many, many grandsons of this person, grandson of the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood. You can imagine why there are many grandsons. He was a polygamist. He was, Yasser was born and brought up and raised in hatred and the desire to destroy Christians. When he was in high school, there was a Christian student in his class named Zechariah. Zechariah was different than the classmates. Zechariah was full of peace. And no matter how much they provoked him and mocked him, tried to get a rise out of him, confronted him with a, a life that you're only going to fail. You have no opportunities. He was at peace. And that the peace of Zechariah fueled the hatred that Yasser felt. 
He just wanted to hurt him. So one night, Yasser and some of his friends planned and brought about uh, an attack on Zechariah. They beat him and left him for dead. That was the last he saw. Yasser saw of Zechariah. He'd gone from school after that. Five years later, uh, Yasser was at a hospital because one, a member of his family was dying. And there was a group of Christians there visiting in a, in a room adjacent to his family member. And for some reason, Yasser's family asked those Christians to, to pray for this family member. And he was healed. Uncle was healed. And that triggered something in Yasser. He, placed, he came to place his faith in Jesus. And as he grew in the Lord, he felt this continual grief for what he had done to the one Christian that he had known. Eventually, another decade later, he went to Germany to seminary. He was becoming a pastor, an evangelist, and he needed more training. And one day at the seminary, there was a group of visiting pastors from Sudan. This is Muslim Sudan, not South Sudan. Visiting pastors. Uh, and he was, he was meeting them, and he was sharing his story, how, how he got there. He was talking about the Christian Zechariah that he had met and what he had done. And, and one of these guys began to cry. And Yasser noticed he had a cane. And his arms were mangled. And he said, I'm Zechariah. And <laughs> 20 years later, just one step closer to us, a few days after I heard that story, I, uh, I was staying with Cedric, and I shared with him, our Rwandan friend, Cedric, and he surprised me by saying, oh, I know Zechariah. Zechariah is the guy I go when I go to Sudan. He's the one that opens the doors for me for evangelism. That, what you just what, what we just did there, that's sharing the affliction. That's sharing the suffering, and it's sharing the comfort. The comfort that God gave to Yasser, the comfort that he gave to Zechariah, the comfort that he's given to Cedric, the, that comfort, it just got multiplied. That's how this works. That's God's spiritual economy. But don't, don't forget this, that today we are suffering. We, the body of Christ, we are in the United States. We are very comfortable, but we are suffering. Today our family experienced loss. Today our, our family is hurting. But today our family is growing. Today our family 
is welcoming new members. Today, our family is confirming new members. Today, the gospel is going out. People are placing their faith in Jesus. Our family, our family's growing. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Lord, you are too wonderful for us, and we are grateful for every crumb, every bit of your living word that you give to us. We admit that we often don't want it, but when you give it to us, we are grateful. Lord, would you give us more desire for truth. Would you give us more desire to live according to the heavenly realities that are never ending? To live according to our place in the kingdom that lasts forever. And so enable us to walk out what we have here. To walk out our circumstances. And to do so with a, a better perspective a truer perspective. In the name of Jesus.